This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're talking about the global coronavirus pandemic. Debate about whether herd immunity is going to save us, right? Back and forth on that. Some scientists say yes, so let's uh, get to it quickly, open things up. Others say it's not the way to go, definitely. New study out of Great Britain puts a damper into the herd immunity idea. Researchers find antibodies from COVID might not last long. They got harder to detect following testing from 12 to 24 weeks after the first infections. So do we get lasting immunity? What about vaccines? We're going to talk about all that. San Francisco was the first major U.S. city to lock down back in March. It was a strict and it was a hard lockdown, and that early response could be paying off now. We'll also talk about a setback in the development of one of the drugs to treat the virus. Let's start with herd immunity. Dr. Deepta Bhattacharya is a professor at the University of Arizona Cancer Center. He's done his own COVID antibody research with similar findings. Doctor, what are your thoughts on these findings? Yeah, I would view those conclusions with just a little bit of caution. And so if I may, maybe what I should do is back up a little bit and explain what happens in the context of a normal immune response. So shortly after you get infected, you know, it's in the, say in the first you know, week or two, um, you make up a, a whole bunch of antibodies early in the response. And, and most of those antibodies are really not very high quality, meaning that they don't stick very tightly to the virus. Uh, and then as, as uh, time goes on, those antibodies that aren't that great are slowly replaced by a smaller quantity of antibodies that work a lot better and they stick more tightly to the virus. And so the cells that produce those better antibodies have the ability to stick around for a long, long time. Uh, and though, even though you're making a lot fewer antibodies, um, the level of protection is more or less the same. So that's what a normal response does. So there's always a decline. Um, and so the question is, what is what, how does it stabilize and how, does that, how stable is that later phase? So, so where, yeah, I was just going to say, as, as we look at what they're saying as part of the study is, you know, you've got two or maybe three months, and I think you found something that was kind of similar. We've, we've heard this going through before that maybe that's as long as you get. So theories for that and what it could mean, uh, do they just not get caught on the test or does your body still remember how to make them if you could get into contact with COVID again, or is it after three months that you're just out of luck? Sorry. Yeah. So, so we, I mean, I guess I'll get straight, cut straight to the chase here. I mean, we don't agree with those conclusions. And so, you know, what we found in our study is that antibodies are produced for at least five to seven months. And we can't really say any more than that because we just don't have any participants that were infected any earlier than that. So that's pretty much what we can say. And, and so then the question is, is what, you know, why is our study and then those of many other studies uh, making different conclusions than the Imperial College of London study? And, and it really has to do with what the methods were and what they were trying to find. So our studies, and then there's another, you know, six or seven other studies, you know, what we did is we followed people, individuals, a lot of them out over time, and then quantified the level of and the concentrations of antibodies over time. The London study is what we call a seroprevalence study, and they're just trying to say yes or no, you know, how many people can we detect antibodies in? And so the methods of that latter type is, is a little bit different because you really want to guard against false positives. 
And so you set this really strict threshold to say, you have to be above this level for us to call you positive. And that's for good reason. I mean, you wanna make sure that you don't tell someone that they have antibodies when they don't. You don't want someone thinking that they're immune when they're not. But the downside of that is then you miss a lot of people that have low levels of antibodies, just like you would fully expect to see towards the end of a response. So even something really durable like measles um, would continue to produce antibodies for a long time that might be missed by tests like this. So the seroprevalence studies, I don't think they're really well designed to tell you exactly how long you make antibodies for. Rather, I think it's a better way to do it is to follow people you know are positives and then really put a precise number and saying this is the exact number of antibodies you have. I, I, I'm guessing that most people listening to this really want to know the answer to two questions. They want to know, if I get COVID, am I going to be immune for how long? Or if eventually there's a vaccine and I get a vaccine for COVID, am I going to be immune for how long? Yeah, those are really good questions. So let me tackle the first one, um, which is after infection, how long are you immune for and what is the risk of getting reinfected? So I, I'm pretty sure that many people have read stories of um, some cases where people have gotten reinfected. The question is, what is the likelihood of that? And you know, how long do we have before that becomes slightly more likely? I think the best data we have is a study, a really large study out of Qatar, um, where it turns out that almost half the population has been infected. So they've really gotten hammered. Um, but it also provides us an opportunity to follow out a lot of people over time to see how often do they actually get reinfected. So the study that I'm thinking about followed about 130,000 people over time, um, about I think through about four months, four or five months, and they found that 12 out of those 130,000 people got infected. So it's not zero, um, but it's also pretty clear that it's not very likely either. So that's that's the data we have for infection. For vaccines, it's, it's tougher to know because there's just so many different platforms that we have out there. Um, and so, you know, I don't think we really know the answer to that. But what really encourages me about the vaccines is that if you look at the early responses, um, they're actually better than what you get from the natural infection. So um, to the extent that we know any of the rules for what a vaccine should look like for giving you long lasting protection, many of them actually look pretty good on that front. So I'm, I'm very much a glass half full uh, optimist on this. Yeah, I was going to say, I like your uh, I like your answers better than the London guys. So thanks, uh, Dr. <laughs> Deep Bhattacharya, professor of immunobiology at the uh, University of Arizona Cancer Center. You said that better than I do. I kind of just slur my way through it. Is that what people you did? don't notice. Back in March, while much of the country was unsure what would happen here as far as the pandemic, San Francisco took immediate action, locked down strict, hard and fast. And that response seems to be paying off. The city is in California's yellow tier, which is the best tier and the one that lets counties just about get back to normal. Seems like a success, especially compared to what much of the country's going through right now, spike in cases. Dr. Grant Colfax, infectious disease specialist, director of the San Francisco Department of Public Health. So, doctor, what explains uh, what you're seeing? From early on in the pandemic, we took a unified and aggressive response to addressing the virus, uh, following the data, science, and facts, working across the health department, but also across the city with other healthcare agencies, with businesses, 
community leaders and faith leaders to make sure we had a unified, sustained, and culturally competent response to addressing the virus. And I think that's what has gotten us here today. Um, as you pointed out, we have one of the lowest infection rates in the state, um, and that's because we have moved aggressively from the shelter-in-place order that went in in early March to scaling up testing, to emphasizing the importance of masking, and then our deliberate reopening strategy from our peak of 130 cases this summer, we have now, we're down to about 30 uh, new cases a day, and we've beat back two surges of the pandemic. So here's what I don't get, because here, for example, in Los Angeles, I mean, they've been emphasizing, you know, since it became obvious you needed to wear masks, they've been emphasizing the need to wear masks, uh, but a lot of people here don't. So is it just that people in San Francisco are more obedient? I mean, I mean what is it up there? Well, I think every, you know, every jurisdiction needs to look at its local circumstances and, uh, again, looking at the science data and facts and apply them accordingly. But I think in San Francisco, we've done a, a couple of, of key things um, that have, have uh, attributed uh, to our success so far. One is uh, we've had a unified approach across, uh, across the city and the county with regard to not only a, taking a public health approach of expanding uh, testing quickly. We're doing 5,000 tests on average a day in our county, which is the highest uh, in the state. We have aggressive, um, culturally competent contact tracing and, and partner notification programs with relatively high rates of um, engagement and success there. Very early on, for people who could not isolate or quarantine if they were exposed to the virus, we set up uh, free hotel rooms to allow people to quarantine and isolate. And we have a very robust uh, healthcare system that uh, came uh, came from across the, the the hospitals in San Francisco to provide a unified approach. But it was more than just about the public health piece. That's obviously vital. But we also recognized early on the socioeconomic consequences of this pandemic. So things like food security um, were addressed. Things like rental assistance were provided. So we really took a holistic approach and made sure from very beginning that we took an equity lens in reaching out and working with community leaders of communities that we knew early on, and as we have unfortunately seen, are bearing an undue burden of, of uh, it with regard to, to this pandemic. We have Dr. Walker on all the time from, from UCSF, and he's quoted as saying that there were a few press conferences where you got up there and scared the blank out of people, and it worked. Do you think you did that? Well, I think we were, we're following the, the data and science, and unfortunately, you know, this virus can, 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 can take off in scary ways. So uh, people in, in San Francisco really um, followed um, the, the, and wanted, you know, I think that the support of the community was key here in ensuring that we did everything we could as a community to slow the spread of the virus. So the social distancing, uh, the masking, uh, the good hygiene practices, the deliberate steps we're taking to, to reopen in a, in a careful and thoughtful way. Um, these are all key key steps that we need to take because, as we've seen, unfortunately, in other parts of the country right now, uh, this virus can take off very quickly. This is all about slowing the spread of the virus and ensuring we don't overwhelm our healthcare system so we can take care of people uh, if and when they get sick. Dr. Grant Colfax, Infectious Disease Specialist, Director, San Francisco mm-hmm. Public Health. Coming up after this short break, how will a treatment setback impact those who are really sick? Doctors and hospitals across the country are preparing for a winter COVID surge. Treating new hospital patients could be tough, though, with a setback in a treatment from drug maker Eli Lilly. 
Bloomberg News health reporter Michelle Cortez talks to WBBM's Jennifer Kuyper about the surge and what's happening with the Eli Lilly treatment. The Midwest is absolutely being hammered by coronavirus, and the challenge is that it's not just in the major cities that are, have been preparing for it all you know, summer and as we're going into the winter here, but it's also hitting a lot of places just out in the heartland, small rural communities, places that really aren't set up to deal with a whole large number of, of new coronavirus cases. So it is very worrisome all across the Midwest. Can you explain what's going on with Eli Lilly and the, uh, the setback that, that uh, their, their exploration for a vaccine has taken? Yeah, so this is a this is a product that's similar to the to the therapeutic that President Trump got. Now, of course, he got one from Regeneron, so it's a different company, but it's the same idea. And these are man-made antibodies, the kind of antibodies that your body would normally make to fight off coronavirus. And in this case, the companies have made it. It's monoclonal antibody, and it's supposed to help you recover more quickly. And that's exactly what happened with President Trump, and he, you know, touted this as a potential cure. Eli Lilly's medicine was used in patients who were much sicker, who were already in the hospital and and having some struggles, and it didn't work. It didn't help those people recover more quickly. It didn't help them get out of the hospital. It didn't reduce deaths. So that's really a, a terrible setback because those are the patients who really need something, the ones who are you know on the edge, not doing well. Not only that, it's a challenge because even if the Regeneron drug does work, They can't make these very quickly. They're hard to do. So it would be better to have two players in this space. Lily's still working on it. Hopefully people who aren't as sick will do better. So we're looking at those mild to moderate cases then, it sounds like. Exactly. So it might have just been that once the patients who were getting this Lily drug already, their immune system was already kicking into overdrive. And it wasn't that they were just trying to fight off the virus. There was other things happening in their bodies. So hopefully that's it. And if we get it into people earlier, it will actually still have a benefit. Fingers crossed. Always great to have you, Michelle. Thanks for joining us. That's Michelle Cortez, health reporter, Bloomberg News out of Minneapolis. Not all is bad in the world when it comes to fighting the virus. The vaccine candidate developed by the University of Oxford with AstraZeneca has produced a robust immune response in older adults and the elderly. Findings and blood tests carried out on a subset of older participants echo data released back in July. This vaccine candidate is one of several frontrunners in the race for protection against the virus. A late-stage trial of the shot was restarted last week in the United States after a temporary halt that followed someone's illness in a separate Great Britain study. The trial in the U.K. and others around the world had already resumed. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Stay well. 